Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast brought to you by the North Jersey Vipers Softball Club. Winter training sessions have begun. Fielding, hitting, you name it, you can get it at the North Jersey Vipers Softball Club. Visit their website, NorthJerseyVipers.com. What a weekend in the Tri-State. It was big-time games, some big-time performances. And let's begin at the top. All right, I want to get to UConn. I want to get to Seton Hall, St. John's, Rutgers. We're also going to do a little Fairfield, Quinnipiac, and Sacred Heart as we do a little tour of Southern Connecticut, Southwestern Connecticut. But let's begin with the number one team in the country, right? What a week for the Huskies. They showed they can win games with their defense. All right, they may not be the best defensive team in the Big East, according to the metrics, but when this team is clicking, when they have King Klongen in the middle, it is totally different, right? When you have a seven foot two shot blocker, agile player like Klingon or Kalkbrenner, they make up for a lot of defensive deficiencies, right? Uh, we saw it with Seton Hall, with Romaro Gill and Ike Obiagu. They just make the defenses better. And that's what UConn showed this week. Welcome back, Donovan Klingon. Uh, got his feet wet a little bit against, against Creighton as the Huskies really, really uh, showed why they're the number one team in the country. 62 to 48. They dominate Creighton. This is a team that came in averaging almost 80 points a game. They held them 32 points below their season average. 32 points. Creighton ended up with 48 points. Uh, that ties their lowest out point for the season. And UConn fans, you know, Creighton is a team that has had your number. UConn came into this game just one in six versus the Blue Jays. But boy, did they turn things around. And, and that is as good as you can defend Creighton. I mean, they pushed them around. They bullied them. They made life hell for them. Uh, everything that UConn did in this game defensively, Creighton was just, they had no answer for it. They had no answer for it. They got physically beat up and... Don't think for a second that Creighton didn't use that and watch that film and apply it to their game against Seton Hall. They learned that, you know what, you can't just be a bunch of shooters and be finesse. That's not the way you win in the Big East. And Creighton used that, learned from it, and applied it to their game against Seton Hall. They definitely did. And we'll get to that Seton Hall game in a little bit. But let's continue with UConn here because after they came into that game, a game that, let's face it, all right, number one team in the country, $2 beer night, white out. I mean, Creighton was running into the perfect storm. And afterward, Dan Hurley said, you know, you're number one in the country. There's no way that you can lose your first game as the number one team in the country. So... You know, he had his team prepared, he had them motivated, and it showed. And then, coming off that high, what would UConn show against Villanova? 
a team that that was coming back after they got beat up by Marquette on Martin Luther King Day. So Villanova, we still don't know what to make of this team. Are they the team that beat Memphis? Are they the team that beat North Carolina? Are they the team that lost to Penn and Drexel? We don't know. It's a weird team to figure out, but know this. When Villanova plays well, they can play with anyone in the Big East, especially at home. So UConn goes to a near sellout Wells Fargo Center. Crowd is jumping. Prime time. You know, you know those fans have been drinking for a little while, had their wine and cheese and their charcuterie boards over there on the main line. How would UConn respond to an emotional win over a ranked Creighton team? Would they have a letdown? Well, the answer came in the first, I don't know, five minutes, four minutes of the game when UConn went on an 11-0 run. Timeout Villanova. UConn was ready for this game, but in typical Villanova fashion, they countered. They responded with a 12-2 run, even the game out, and it was game on. So Villanova actually led this game in the second half, and then... He plays in the game, late in the game, final three minutes, it's crunch time, game's tied at 58, Tristan Newton, who had 25 points in this game, he was named the Big East Player of the Week, and deservedly so, after scoring his fourth 20-point game of the season, Newton has the ball in his hands, the playmaker, the point guard for UConn, and he spots Alex Caravan in the corner. Three ball corner pocket. UConn takes the lead. A huge shot by Caravan. So UConn's up three. But then there were two key possessions for Villanova. And it had me saying, wow, times have changed. Justin Moore gets called for not one, but two offensive hooking fouls as he's driving to the hoop. Were they the right call? Yes. But you never, ever used to see those called against Villanova, ever. Because Jay Wright and Villanova got all the calls. Or at least it seemed that way. Villanova never got called for those fouls in years past. All right? You would see them come in offensively, right? You know, stick out that elbow, get some push off, get some breathing room, step back jumpers, never called, never. Every call seemed to go their way, but not on this night. And let's look at this UConn team throughout the year, right? Dan Hurley has said, hey, you know, we need some respect here for the national champs. How come we're not getting a better whistle? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he planted the bug early on, you know, in January, and the facts are the facts. UConn wasn't getting a favorable whistle. They got a, they got one in these situations. And listen, I don't have a rooting interest in this game. It's UConn. It's Villanova. I'm from UConn. I mean, I'm from Connecticut. So yeah, I I I, I root for I root for our tri-state teams. I root for my my home nutmeg team. Going back to my roots, but. I'm trying to look at this objectively. Justin Moore hooked. They called it. 
UConn hit free throws down the stretch. Donovan Klingon continues to get healthier and healthier. UConn wins its seventh straight game. They are seven and two. They are very much the number one team in the Big East. They are very much the number one team in the country right now. Deservedly so. If you look at the tiers in the Big East, UConn is alone on tier one. They are in a much earned bye week. They're off until Sunday versus Xavier. The next two are at home for the Huskies. It'll be Xavier at the XL Center and then Providence in stores on January 31st. The next seven games, Xavier, Providence, St. John's, Butler, Georgetown, DePaul, Marquette at home. UConn's going to be favored in all seven of those games. They won't be an underdog until they face Creighton in Omaha on February 20th. All right, so this team, they're just getting warmed up. They've won seven straight. Could they make it 14 straight? You don't know in the Big East. Dan Hurley said it. You know, these games, they're they're a manhood test every time you step on the court in the Big East. Those are Hurley's words. This was a gut check win against Villanova. Yes, Mark Armstrong hit a late three, a half court shot to make it a one point win. But UConn proved they can win ugly. They can win defensive battles when they're not at their best offensively. And that's scary. They proved the litmus test. They passed the litmus test this week. Winning an emotional home game, following it up with a challenging road game in the Big East against a very solid Villanova team. It's certainly not a great Villanova team but they certainly have some great players there led by Dixon and Moore and TJ Bamba guys who know how to do it and Armstrong, right? I mean, they're good. We still don't know what to make of Villanova, but we do know what to make of UConn. They are number one. Now let's get to Seton Hall. So many things to talk about with this Creighton game. So many things. Let's take them in order. All right, number one, so many key calls in this game went against the Pirates. This was a game that I alluded to before. It was physical. I read Dana O'Neill, who's an excellent writer. I read her, her article on Shaheen Holloway in The Athletic. If you haven't read it, check it out. It's a great profile piece on... Shaheen Holloway and how he's turned this team around this year miraculously. She said, and I'm quoting her, she said it, this game was looked more like a, a rugby match than a basketball game. And I'm all for that, all right? I have been to hundreds of college basketball games over the years. And I'm not going to say this was the worst officiated game, right? It's always the worst officiated game. I'm not going to say that, but it was one of the worst officiated games. The reason why I'm saying it wasn't the worst is because I'd rather let these guys play. And Pat Driscoll and company were letting these guys play. I mean, every time Kaderi Richmond was driving into the lane, he had an elbow in his back. 
All right. They were letting it be physical. Trey Alexander, Stephen Ashworth, whoever it was, they were riding him and letting it go. They were letting guys go. They were letting them bang inside. I mean, it was awesome seeing Betty Ako and Kalkbrenner and, and Davis and Shireman. Just these guys bang, like let them go. So if you're calling it that way, how do you totally flip the script later? But the key to this game was the calls that went against Seton Hall that really cost them or led to them losing this game, right? As Shaheen Holloway said afterward, look, it, it wasn't one play, it wasn't one call, and he took the high road. I mean, you gotta give credit to you know, both teams, man. I mean, I'm, I'm sour, like I'm very sour right now, but I mean, that was a hell of a basketball game. You know, both teams fought to the end. You know, we can't ask for much more. You got guys playing on both sides 50 plus minutes, right? You know, it's unfortunate somebody had to lose, right? Um, I know, I'm, like I said, I'm sour, but it was a tremendous basketball game. At the end of regulation, Seton Hall had fought back late. They took the lead on a Richmond putback. Creighton's down two. They call timeout. They get the ball over half court. 12 seconds left. They inbound the ball. Was it travel? Was it not by Farabello? Look, I don't know if it was travel. He shuffled his feet. Apparently, by the letter of the law, it's not a travel. But... Creighton gets another chance to inbound the ball after they call timeout, set it up again. Shireman's inbounding the ball, and it is, look, I have it on my phone. It's on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen the replays, but check it out. I recorded it. It is six seconds before Shireman calls timeout. It is a legit six seconds, and that official had the slowest count in the world. Look at a stopwatch. And time it out yourself. It's six seconds. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, right? It wasn't that. It was 1,001, 1,002. And Shireman calls timeout on his four seconds when it was really five and a half seconds going on six. So Seton Hall doesn't get that call. Creighton inbounds the ball. And give Stephen Ashworth credit, all right? He gets the ball with six seconds left and drives off of Al Dawes. Al Dawes, way too aggressive there. He blows by Dawes and throws up a, a, a tear-dropping, arcing layup. Flipped it off the backboard. Dre Davis coming over, nearly blocked it. Ashworth gets, gets hit in the follow-through. The ball goes in and we go to overtime. Now, Creighton fans would say, oh, he got fouled there. But you know what? I'm glad they didn't call it because it was it was after he released it. He didn't get clobbered. All right. There was some contact there. That's the way they had called it. So good. Play on. All right. That was one call on the on the five second call. The second play that I want to reference is in the second overtime. Again, Seton Hall was down late in the second overtime. Furious comeback. Al Dawes gets fouled shooting three. Seton Hall's down four. Dawes makes all three free throws. And again, Creighton is having trouble inbounding the ball. It's Farabello running the baseline. He goes to his left, throws it in. Kaderi Richmond reaches up, steals it, 
and immediately spots a wide open Dawes underneath the basket for a layup. Place is going bananas, but there's a whistle and they call Ashworth on a foul. Now, I couldn't see it from my vantage point where I was behind the backboard, but it is clear. Dave Portnoy put it on his Twitter feed, called it the worst call ever. Seton Hall fans got a foul against them late in the game that cost them the game. Hmm, where have you heard that before? And I'll say this, as many times as I have seen Ramil Robinson drive through the lane, all right, I'm dying to see if Michigan hits that last shot, but we never know because John Clogarty was whistled and we know the rest, right? Ramil Robinson was barely brushed there. I will say this, Ramil Robinson was touched more than Kaderi Richmond was. Nobody touched Kaderi Richmond. How do you make that call in that situation? You are a veteran Big East official. How do you make that call when all game long, these guys have been murdering each other? Number one, he didn't get fouled. So now you're saying, oh, you thought you saw the foul. How about getting together, maybe an inadvertent whistle, whatever it was, that was costly. Now, Kaderi Richmond makes the front end of the one and one. It's a tie game, misses the second. So again, opportunities to be made there. Richmond, if he makes the free throw, Seton Hall wins by one, regardless of that foul. But again, when it's called one way the entire game and you change it, that hurts more. What are you doing? And that's why this, this game, you don't know what to make of it. And here's my third point. On top of all of that, Greg McDermott, I don't know how in hell he did not get a technical foul because these officials got an earful the entire game. All right. Greg McDermott is the modern day John Thompson. He's larger than life. 6'5", 6'6", 6'8", whatever he is. Larger than life. Just physically standing over these officials. And in their ear, constantly complaining about a Kalkbrenner. He got hit. Kalkbrenner. How do you call that a block? Right? This is why Creighton leads the nation in fewest fouls per game. Yes, they're very good defensively. I'll give them that. But I'm telling you, the officials are human. And they stand there and they took it. I mean, look, both coaches were out of the box. I get that. Both coaches are on the court. But I mean, he's constantly on the court. And it wasn't just him. It was the assistants. Every time out, the officials are standing there. And they're not even in their huddle. They're, they're yelling at the officials. And it's how it happens all game long. I bet there wasn't even a warning. It's, it's embarrassing, the fact that he didn't get a technical in this game. Embarrassing. And that leads me to a fourth point with these officials. How in hell are they giving the Seton Hall student section a warning? I've never heard of that. All right? Listen, I went to Seton Hall, okay? And Seton Hall fans are great, but they're not known to be the rowdiest, 
or the, you know, the best fans in the country, quote unquote. When I ask you who are the best fans in the country, everyone will automatically say Duke, right? That's the first, that's the first school that you think of with their fans. Purdue fans are awesome, right? Very creative in what they do. UConn fans are awesome. I mean, some may differ, but they're loud and they're very creative as well. You mean to tell me these officials are, are picking on Seton Hall fans for, for, you know, saying things to the Creighton bench? Are you kidding me? There is nothing that these Seton Hall fans could have done that merited the officials going over there at halftime and warning them. That tells you these officials were in way over their head. Greg McDermott had the officials in his back pocket. That's what that tells me. Okay, the fact that these officials have to go over and warn the Seton Hall students who are having fun. We're not obnoxious. We're not cursing. And they're being warned by by these ragtag officials who couldn't even who couldn't even get the calls right when they needed to late in this game. Just just a disgusting all around performance by these officials. And you know what? Nothing's going to happen. Nothing. They're not going to get suspended. They're not going to you know lose out on games because that's the way it works, all right? People complain, uh, you hear about it, and then they move on, and then they're on to the next game until it happens again. So those are my points there. This took away from what was just an awesome college basketball game. As I said before, I've been to countless games, and this was the best college basketball game I have ever been to. I've never been in person to a triple overtime game the seesawing back and forth, the lead changes, Creighton had it won, Seton Hall had it won, Creighton had it won again, Seton Hall had it won. I mean, you didn't know what was going to happen until Creighton closed out the game. Just some fantastic individual performances. Hats off to Ryan Kalkbrenner. He is first team all Big East. Monster, 28 points, seven blocks. Somebody said that that uh, my guy Everett Merrill from the AP Everett said that in his press conference, Greg McDermott talked about Kalkbrenner's seven blocks and said all seven of his blocks were against Kaderi Richmond. If so, that, that's just amazing. Amazing. All right. 28 points, nine rebounds, seven assists. You know, there's 55 minutes in a triple overtime game. Look at the minutes played. Kalkbrenner, 54. Shireman played all 55. 20 points, 10 rebounds, six assists. Trey Alexander played 53 minutes. So you had three starters playing over 50 minutes and one of them playing the entire game. Kaderi Richmond, hats off to him. The first triple-double by a Seton Hall player in a Big East game. Bam! Eddie Griffin had the only other triple-double in Seton Hall history in 2000 uh, against Norfolk State. But Kaderi did have 32 shots, eight for 32. And there's no way that Shaheen Holloway wants to drop a game where Kaderi Richmond has 32 shots. All right. He wasn't himself. He missed a lot of bunnies. He missed a ton of layups. He was a warrior. Not your typical Kaderi Richmond game, but if anyone was going to get a triple-double, in a Seton Hall uniform, it was Kaderi Richmond. He had come close before. 
the end result says what it says. 21 points, 11 rebounds, 11 assists in 51 minutes. He is further cementing himself as the Big East player of the year. I know we still have 12 games or so left, but he is the front runner right now and everyone is chasing Kaderi Richmond. Al Dawes again goes over 20 points. He is on fire of late. Al Dawes scored all 21 of his points in the second half. Amazing second half by Dawes. So between he and Richmond, it was just one big shot after another. All right, kudos to Jaden Bediaco. He, he continues to be the most impressive transfer in the Big East. 15 points, 10 rebounds, five blocks, more than held his own, along with Elijah Hutchins Everett. You put those two together, right? Because Creighton has one center, Kalkbrenner. 28, nine rebounds, seven blocks. Well, Betty Ako and Hutchins Everett were pretty damn impressive themselves because you combine their points, 21 points, 13 rebounds, five blocks, amazing. Absolutely incredible what those two have morphed into. And you're, you'd be hard-pressed to find any player all right, who goes from a mid-major like Santa Clara and comes to the Big East and his numbers go up across the board. Jaden Bediaco is averaging career highs in points, rebounds, and block shots. That just doesn't happen when you step up in class and go from a mid-major to a major. It doesn't happen very often. And I don't know all the history of, of players who have done it, but you'd be hard-pressed to find another one. You'd have to dig pretty far to find something like that. Jaden Bediaco has become the glue guy. He has become the X factor for Seton Hall. And Elijah Hutchins Everett is now becoming the player that Shaheen Holloway thought he was getting from Austin P, the East Orange native, the tough guy who can come in there. And he's hit two threes now. So he is more than capable of hitting a three, getting rebounds, getting points. And he's not just, you know, holding the fort while Jaden Bediaco is out there. So it's been really nice to see what they have done. Folks, Seton Hall is for real. They belong in the top four of the Big East. Barring a, a catastrophic collapse, this team is not only going to make the NCAA tournament, but now they're playing for seeding. So now we will see if they can get up off the mat, okay, coming off of their most emotional loss of the season, and can they beat Providence and finish this homestand at 2-1 and one before going to Marquette? This is an important game to see where their character is, where their heart is, can they bounce back, and can they beat a team that they've already beaten once on the road? Can they take care of them at home? We shall see. That brings us to St. John's. What do we make of the Johnnies? We know what Seton Hall has become. We know what Seton Hall's identity is. They've taken on the identity of their coach. Hard-nosed, tough, relentless, physical. Never say die. 
We thought St. John's was becoming that. We thought St. John's was getting it defensively. We thought St. John's after that four game win streak was becoming the team that Patino envisioned. And then along came Creighton, a heartbreaking one point loss. And that was followed up with a no show against Seton Hall where they get blown out in a building where they have won once in 13 tries. I know they didn't have Patino. I know they didn't have Dingle. They weren't winning that game anyway. Not the way they played. Not the way Joel Soriano played. Not the way RJ Luis played. So now suddenly they lose two in a row. Their fans are getting anxious. They come home against the Marquette team that's ranked a chance to get a quad one victory, a chance to get back up and show that we do belong in the upper half of the Big East. And what happens? Well, the first half was great. They had a 10-point lead. Marquette couldn't throw the ball in the East River. Marquette missed their first 11 threes of this game. They scored 28 points in the first half, all in the paint. I mean, what is this? Shades of 1977? Was Al McGuire on the sidelines? 28 first half points, all in the paint. The second half comes. St. John's is, is winning this game. And like we've seen with St. John's in these games they've lost, they have given up big runs. It was a 28-0 run against Seton Hall. This time it was a 28-10 run. The Johnnies led 48-43 after a dunk by Danis Jenkins. And then Marquette goes on their 28-10 run. Turns a five-point deficit into a 13-point lead, 71-58. Suddenly, Marquette, when they couldn't buy a three-pointer in the first half, they hit six of nine in the second half. Totally a tale of two halves. And now St. John's has to come from behind. And to their credit, they did. A furious rally by St. John's. They go on a 14-2 run over the final 6-20. All right, Marquette, they couldn't get a field goal. They only had, they managed two free throws in six minutes. And St. John's still couldn't win. How many times is St. John's going to come into crunch time with the ball in their hands, just like Creighton, and not be able to hit the shot? Whatever it's been. You want to say there was a foul on a rebound. Uh, Jenkins still got a good look in that Creighton game. Had to shoot it over a seven-footer. But you know what? He got the shot off. Again, Jenkins had the ball in his hands late in this game. St. John's down one. Got off a three and missed it. Go back 10 seconds. Chris Ledlam had a three and a chance to take the lead and missed it. Two chances Two looks from three in the final 10 seconds. And in between all that, Tyler Kolick missed not one, not two, not three, but four free throws. Four. That doesn't happen. Marquette was doing everything it could to give this game away in the final couple of minutes. And St. John's couldn't take advantage. They had looks. They had shots. They couldn't get them to fall. 
And so again, another brutal, agonizing one-point loss, this time on their home court. R.J. Luis goes for 20. First time, oh, by the way, that R.J. Luis has scored in double figures this year, and St. John's has lost. They were 5-0 and previously. That's usually a number that puts them over the top. Zubi Ejiofor continues to show why he was such a highly regarded top 50 recruit at Kansas. Uh, continues to play very well. Not sure what's going on with Joel Soriano. You know, if you listen to my podcast and you follow me on Twitter, I am a huge Joel Soriano fan. He is a double-double machine. Well, this year, over the last four or five games, something is wrong. How, if you consider yourself, and he is, a first-team All-Big East player, how do you take five shots? Five shots. 11 points, nine rebounds would be good for most centers. Not Joel Soriano. So Zuby Ejiofor has outplayed him the last two or three games. I don't know what's going on there. Rick Pitino needs his big man to get out of this funk and start dominating like he can. They need him in the worst way. They should get Dana Dingle back. He's missed uh, the last two games due to COVID. They won't be with Naheem Aline. But look, their season isn't over, all right? We've seen too many times... You know, we, we just have to go back to UConn last year, going through, you know, losing six of eight at one point or four of six, whatever it was in the Big East. I think it was four of six, you know, and turning their season around. It, it's a war of attrition in the Big East. All right. You've won four straight. Now you've lost three straight. You're four and four in Big East play. You have a desperate Villanova team coming in. You're more desperate. It's your home court beat Villanova at the Garden on Wednesday. That's what it has to be. There are 12 games left. If Villanova comes in and loses this game, right? If St. John's wins, things can suddenly go in the other direction. We've seen it. So if St. John's splits, if they just split and go 6-6 six and six over their final 12, that gets them to 10-10 and 10 in the Big East and 18 wins. That puts them squarely on the bubble. Get to seven and five. There are opportunities. They play Georgetown twice. They played DePaul twice. We know DePaul doesn't even have their head coach. They fired Tony Stubblefield. It's a three and 15 team. Beat the teams you're supposed to beat. And then maybe you knock off a Xavier. Maybe you knock uh, on the road. There are quad one opportunities you're going to get a rematch game against Marquette on the road. You're going to get a rematch game at UConn on February 3rd at the Garden. Plenty of quad one games left. Win seven of your last 12 at least. That gets you to 19 wins, 11-9 in the Big East. That will do it. Big picture. But first, beat Villanova. Otherwise, you know, all you did with that four-game winning streak You've just totally just blew it up. We'll see what the Johnnies can do on Wednesday. Big Wednesday doubleheader. Seton Hall hosting Providence and St. John's hosting Villanova. All right. 
That's it for the Tri-State in the Big East. Let's get to Rutgers because this season is starting to slip away for the Scarlet Knights. I, I think I think we've seen enough from this team to know what they are. They are, this is not a great Pikel team. Let's face it. This is not Ron Harper and Geo Baker and Caleb McConnell at their best. You know, they're, they're missing the star quality. We know that Cam Spencer and Paul Mulcahy aren't coming through that door anytime soon. They are so inconsistent. It, it's back to the early days of Pikel. Great at home, awful on the road. All right, they go to Illinois, one of the best teams in the country. They get their star back, Terrence Shannon Jr. Uh, Rutgers, stop me Rutgers fans if you've heard this one before. Rutgers goes on the road, can't hit a shot, falls behind early, digs itself an early hole, losing by double digits, claws their way back, makes a game of it, gets it to within four, only to have the wheels come off and implode down the stretch. Sound familiar? It's exactly what happened. They cut the Illinois lead to 55-51, and then Illinois says, bye-bye, meet me. Roadrunner zipping away from the Wiley Coyote. 31-12 to run over the final 10 minutes and 20 seconds. Rutgers got their doors blown in. Noah Fernandes, who was having a nice game, fouled out. They weren't winning the game with or without him. Cliff Amore, who's put together back-to-back -back games in, in Big Ten play for the first time this season, was a monster. His best Big Ten game of the season after that monster double-double against Nebraska. He goes for 22-9, and nine, but he had no help. Derek Simpson, three for 10. Mawat Mag, one for six. Andre Hyatt, you know, he was fairly consistent, five for 12, but there was, there was no help. And down goes Rutgers. They are one and seven away from home and nine and one at home. It, it is night and day. They have a week off to prepare for Purdue. We know Purdue has lost their last two trips to Jersey Mike's. It would not surprise me if Rutgers beats Purdue. They're going to give them a game. It, it's just the way it is. If they can beat them in any building, it's at home. All right, I'm not closing the door in this Rutgers season. I don't know what or where they're going, NIT, whatever it is. Don't even worry about that. Just, just try to get some consistency and try to win some games and see what happens. Okay, and last thing I'll say about this Rutgers game, Terrence Shannon Jr., the star player for uh, for Illinois, one of the best guards in the country, had been suspended by the school, uh, rape felony charges. He allegedly raped a woman on a, on a trip to Kansas during the football season in September. The school suspended him indefinitely but a judge gave him a temporary restraining order, lifting the indefinite suspension and allowing him to play. So, look, if you're Illinois, if you're Brad Underwood, of course you're playing him. Why? Because the law said he can play. So, 
Brad Underwood had an out and said, listen, I'm playing him. All right. So we don't know if he's guilty. And I know that we should, we should, you know, you always believe the woman in a rape situation. But until all of the details come out, the judges said he can play. The indefinite suspension was lifted. And I don't care if you're Rutgers, you're Seton Hall, you're UConn, you're Illinois, you're UCLA, Kentucky. If your star player is eligible and the judges said he's eligible, you do the same thing that Brad Underwood would. Okay. So that's that until further proven. Expect to see Terrence Shannon in an Illinois uniform the rest of the season. So I, I think Rutgers is losing, losing this game anyway, with or without Terrence Shannon. But, you know, it, it was just an odd scene. They gave him a standing ovation when he first came into the game in the first half. He didn't start. And then he comes off the bench and just not a good look from Illinois fans giving somebody who, who's facing felony rape charges a standing ovation. All right. I, I get it. When he scores, you cheer. But that, that, that just wasn't a good look, giving him a standing ovation. So anyway, we'll see if Rutgers can beat Purdue and, and shock the Boilermakers again. Uh, let's continue to go around the tri-state. And I want to touch upon Quinnipiac. What a job by Tom Pecora. Seton Hall fans, there's a name that rings a bell. Once upon a time, Pecora was believed to be the, the number one candidate to replace Lewis Orr. That job went to Bobby Gonzalez and Pecora remained at Hofstra, signed a contract extension, did well at Hofstra. And then Pecora was rumored to be again in the mix for the Seton Hall job. Four years later, when Gonzalez got fired, instead the job went to Kevin Willard. Pecora goes to Fordham after success at Hofstra. Did not have success at Fordham. And he's been at Quinnipiac. And he became the Bobcats head coach when their former coach, Baker Dunleavy, left to become the GM of Villanova. That's where we're at, right? A general manager of a college basketball program. Well, if you're Villanova, you can afford a GM. So Baker Dunleavy goes to Nova. And all that Pecora has done is win. Win. They are 6-1, and one, tied for first place in the MAC with St. Peter's. They have won five in a row, seven of eight. Their only loss along the way was to Florida. What a win over Iona on Sunday. Oh, just a gut punch to Iona. You know, Gales fans are, 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 are dying for their team to get something going this year. It's been hard to get any consistency with this team with all these new players. You know, it's like a mirror version of St. John's with all these transfers. You know, one returning player, very similar. No consistency between Iona and St. John's, and yet they have two very good coaches. But Tobin Anderson, his team was up. They were up eight with 3.08 to play. And Quinnipiac goes on a 13-1 run to just stun Iona and shock them. Doug Young had a career-high 24 points. He came in averaging 5.2. A Herculean effort by Eden Tritu from Iona. He had 30 points, and that was for naught. A uh, big bucket in the game. Quinnipiac down one, 28 seconds to play, and Savion Lewis drives in the lane, in traffic, puts up the shot and scores, and Quinnipiac goes up one, and they win the game 91-87.
Quinnipiac is now eight and one at home, undefeated in conference play. They're only lost to Yale. They have a massive game coming up at Fairfield next Sunday. Circle that one, right? It's a little Southern Connecticut rivalry at Fairfield. And speaking of those stags, they had a heck of a road win against a pesky Manhattan team. 82-75. Again, this game was close late. Manhattan had cut it to two with 21 seconds to play. And there was a wild sequence. All right, follow me here. Manhattan's at home. They cut it to two. Places going bananas. And Fairfield gets the ball. They're running up court. All right, Manhattan's got a foul. The shot clock is off. There's 21 seconds to play. Manhattan's down two. They have to foul. Fairfield does not have to shoot. But yet, Bryson Goodine gets the ball on the wing right in front of the Fairfield bench. And you know, Chris Casey, when he saw Goodine go up from three, is like, what the heck are you doing? No. And then Bryson Goodine, ice water in his veins, the same Bryson Goodine that erupted for 40 points just a couple of weeks ago says, no, 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 I'm calling game. Okay, screw your foul shots. Screw that. I'm calling game. Three-pointer swish. And the bench goes bananas. Chris Casey's like, oh, my God, right? No, no, no. Yes. What are you doing shooting the ball? Well, you know what? The shot went in. So great move by Bryson. All right. He hits it. They go up 78-73. All right. You know, my God, if he misses it, right? Manhattan gets the ball down by two with 16 seconds left, but it doesn't matter. He hit the shot. I've never seen that. I mean, wow. The balls for Bryson Goodine. Well, good for him because you can't spell Goodine without the good, right? So he had the goods on that shot. Uh, monster game out of Caleb Fields and Jalen Leach. They combined for 48 points. Jalen Leach was then named the Mac player of the week. He averaged 22 points, 4.7 assists as the Stags won three in a row. They are right there. The top three teams in the MAC, ladies and gentlemen. St. Peter's and Quinnipiac at six and one. Fairfield right there at six and two. First place battle on the line Sunday at Fairfield. Stags hosting Bobcats. Book it. Great matchup. All right, and our last team of the Tri-State, Sacred Heart. They defeat Wagner 66-61. Joey Riley, the pride of East Catholic and Cromwell, Connecticut, goes for 20 points for the third straight game, and he has been a monster. All right, four out of his last five games, he's averaging 22 points over those five, over four out of those last five games. He scores 21 Sacred Heart had no Nico Gallette, the preseason player of the year. He's banged up. He hasn't been healthy all year. So he sat out. They've been without Tanner Thomas for over a month. Their second best player. He could be done for the season, but their depth wore down Wagner. All right. And Wagner, oh, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, Donald Copeland. All right. He's down to seven players. So Anthony Latina, Donald Copeland's looking over saying, listen, dude, don't don't talk to me about injuries. I've got seven healthy guys. That's it. All right. He's got guys that are trying to come back from injuries. He's got guys that are done for the season. He's doing it with smoke and mirrors, Donald Copeland. 
seven players. They can't even practice. They can't even go five on five and practice. So Wagner puts up a hell of a game and they, they fall in the end 66-61. Riley hit a big three-point play late. Sacred Heart survives. They are now 4-1 and one, tied with Central Connecticut atop the Northeast Conference. And their next game, all right? Look ahead to Sacred Heart. It's a tough week. At St. Francis of PA, yes, they beat them by 12 at home. But St. Francis of PA has been a house of horrors for Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart has lost their last 10 trips to Pennsylvania. They haven't won at St. Francis since 2013. And you know Anthony Latina knows that. So a very challenging game on the road at St. Francis. Then they have to follow that up with a game at Fairleigh Dickinson. Sacred Heart will be tested this week. We'll see if the Pioneers can survive. But right now, they're tied for first with Central Connecticut in the Northeast Conference. That is your Tri-State College Basketball Podcast, everyone. Woo, had a lot of fun. Hope you did, too. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, the North Jersey Vipers Softball Club. Check them out, NorthJerseyVipers.com. Please continue to download us, subscribe to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast, and tell your friends all about it. I thank you for listening. I couldn't do it without you. I'm having the time of my life and really enjoying talking college basketball in the Tri-State. Enjoy the games, everyone. Until next time, my name is Brian Dinavellis. Thanks for listening to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast.